Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. Episode 192, Bienvenidos Bitches, Buiti Binafi, and thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered as well as the victims, because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? No, these crimes rarely get any public attention because, well, the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She's an ally. Hashtag be like Beth. Hashtag <laughs> fix Beth a plate. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that. Our opinions. All right, so who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Lonnie David Franklin Jr., a.k.a. the Grim Sleeper, a serial killer who was responsible for at least 10 murders and one attempted murder in Los Angeles, California, between 1984 and 2007. Quite the time span. Yes. But before we get into this creepo, schleepo, <laughs> motherfuckero, how you doing? I'm all right. Just another day, you know? Another day that ends with why. Here we yep, are. Here we uh, are. <laughs> Earth is ghetto. Beth wants to leave. Can you yeah, be? Yeah, today I kind of want to leave. <laughs> oh, I'm How sorry, friend. <laughs> well, I, if, if I'm being honest, I'm doing fantastic. That's awesome. We are recording this a day late because yesterday was Old Whitey's birthday. Right. And it's also, it's kind of a, a big deal day. So it's 4-4. It's his birthday. It's the anniversary of the assassination of MLK. And speaking of Atlanta greats, 
404 is the area code here in Atlanta. And uh-huh. so 404 day is Atlanta day <laughs> and there's celebrations. Nice. And we went to one at Piedmont Park. There was food. There was a DJ in the daytime. Wow. And dancing and music. It was just like a whole vibe, like nice. street vendors, street performers. Generally, I say I hate it here. And when I say here, I'm usually speaking about Earth right. because it's ghetto. Right. But I love Atlanta. So nice. <laughs> all is well over here. Awesome. Yes, ma'am. So let's get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank hey. you. Oh. <sighs> What's in that bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Mara Vlad for your five-star review. And Tlaine and Catherine for your emails. Yes. Thank you so much. We see them all. We see them all. Even though Wendy is very bad at replying timely and swiftly. But (laughs) I I see them and I will. She will reply eventually. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to say, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6262. Nine four, <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode. I also wanted to say shout out to Bethany at Crackers and Soup, who said about our recent Black Widow episode, Emma Jean Rain, and she was like, "Uh, that girl is wild, and not in a good way." She said she was unaliving everybody, <laughs> and everybody is E R R B O D Y, and yes, she was. Hip hop air horns to all of you. Yeah, thanks, Bethany. We can't do the show without any of you, the people who send us letters, the people who put in the comments and the people who support us on Patreon. Yeah. And buy merch and all that stuff. So let's take a quick break and then we'll get into the story when we come back. Okay. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com All right, we're back. Now, Beth, remind us, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Lonnie David Franklin Jr., who was convicted of murdering nine women and one girl during a 23-year killing spree, which took place between 1985 and 2007. Franklin was dubbed the Grim Sleeper for an apparent gap of more than 14 years or I think it was more like 13 years anyway, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between the killings from 1988 to 2002. 
But authorities believe the Grim Sleeper never really slept. No. Nope. And they suspect he murdered many more women than he was convicted for. Absolutely. That's just the tip of the iceberg, if, mm-hmm. if we're being honest. So let's get into some stats. All right. So the victims in this case were all young, vulnerable black women who lived in South Los Angeles and struggled with drug addiction. By the way, South L.A. is kind of a euphemism. You know, there's euphemisms because sometimes people don't want to say black or African-American. So they'll say South Los Angeles or Chicago or woke. Anyway, and they were struggling with drug addiction. Their naked or partially clothed bodies were all dumped in the neighborhood alleys left to rot under garbage and debris. They were all shot at close range with a 25 caliber pistol, strangled or both. And the Grim Sleeper, his AKA for a minute, was the 25 caliber killer because that was the weapon. And then also he had an AKA called Smacky the Clown. What? Because apparently he worked as a clown at one point in his life. And he snapped and assaulted a dad during a birthday party. Oh, my God. He was arrested for that. But I don't know what happened. After that, I really didn't do any further searching. But the source is in the, in the show notes, so you can look into That's it further. Nuts. Yeah. So his spree lasted from 1984 to 2007, but there is an apparent gap, an alleged gap in the murders right. from the late 1980s to the early 2000s. And so that's how he was given the name, the Grim Sleeper. And the victims are Rest in Power Queens Deborah Jackson, 29, Henrietta Wright, 34, Mary Lowe, 26. Bernita Sparks, 26, Barbara Ware, 23, Shrika Jefferson, 22, Monique Alexander, 18, Princess Bortholomew, 15, Valerie McCorvey, 35, and Janicia Peters was 25. And Anitria Washington was a survivor, and we'll hear about her case a little bit later. There are other possible victims, including Georgia May Thomas was 43, Inez Warren, 28, Sharon Dismuke, 21, Ayala Marshall, 18, Rolenia Morris, 31. And if you were concerned uh, that this man was still out there, grim sleeping, no worries, <laughs> that motherfucker is dead. So <laughs> also love and light to everybody left in the wake of yeah. the grim sleepers fuckery. Right. So let's get into the setting, Beth. Take us there. Well, South Central Los Angeles is a region in southwestern Los Angeles County, surprisingly enough. Wow. <laughs> Lying mostly within the city limits of Los Angeles, south of downtown. The original inhabitants of the area were the Tongva people, now known as the Gabrielino Tongva tribe. Lured by an expanding economy and the prospect of jobs, the relatively low cost of real estate, (laughs) that is not true anymore, a mild climate and a seemingly less overt racism, Black people began moving to Los Angeles in large numbers after 1900. And for the next 40 years, their numbers doubled every decade and by 1940 represented slightly more than 4% of the total population. The city was already segregated because of racially restrictive housing covenants and redlining. One of the only areas not covered by restrictive covenants extended south from downtown Los Angeles along Central Avenue. South Central Avenue is a major thoroughfare stretching from downtown L.A. through Watts, Willowbrook, Compton, and down to Carson. Yeah, and again, all these places have a negative connotation because Black people live there. But if you go there, it's actually really cool. Certainly, there are there are bad parts everywhere. But I just want to yeah. say, just because it's Watts or just because it's Compton doesn't mean it's bad. The whole place, yeah. Exactly. 
So by 1940, approximately 70% of the Black population of Los Angeles was confined to the Central Avenue corridor, and it became an epicenter for Black life in L.A. Between 1942 and 1945, some 200,000 Black people migrated from Los Angeles for wartime jobs. Though the Black community was growing fast in the 1940s, it remained confined to pre-war boundaries. The larger the Black population grew, the more tightly enforced were the restrictive housing covenants. Overcrowding became the number one issue facing Los Angeles's Black community during this time. The lack of housing and overcrowding made for poor living conditions. Yeah, and you can look at photos. I can't remember which documentary you, maybe you and I watched together for the video club. But there's footage of Black people having like parades and looking really yeah. nice. Like life was really good for it a was. time. Yeah. In 1948, the court case Shelley v. Kramer rendered the restrictive housing covenants illegal. Gradually through the 1950s, the southern section of Los Angeles from Watts and west towards Inglewood, Inglewood and the Crenshaw district became increasingly black. As the 1950s gave way to the early 1960s, neighborhoods were desegregated and several of the leading black churches were beginning to wield political influence in civic affairs. Black people began to buy homes in the white middle class neighborhoods of South L.A. I'm sorry, I have to do a culture corner. I did a terrible decision and listened to Tucker Carlson be interviewed oh, by no, Adam why? Carolla. <laughs> why? Because I think it's important to know what they're saying yeah. on the other side. And he is, Tucker Carlson in the right will criticize people like Jesse Jackson and Reverend Al Sharpton. But the Black church is a very important figure in Black culture, Black mm -hmm. movements, Black progress. And so, yeah, maybe they just show up for a photo op, but they use their platforms and their notoriety to give attention to issues or people who need justice or who are seeking justice. So the influence that the Black church has in civic affairs is important, and I don't think it should be laughed at, which is what Tucker Carlson was doing. Yeah, well, he's a dick. Yeah, he is. So white people lost their shit, surprise, surprise, and South Los Angeles became the site of significant racial violence with white people bombing, firing into, and burning crosses on the lawns of homes purchased by black families. Wow. Welcome to the neighborhood. Yeah. Jeez. And the police were no help. Mm. The white LAPD gained a reputation for being aggressive towards the black community. And that's an understatement. Yeah. The reputation of the LAPD became especially notorious under the reign of Chief William Parker from 1950 to 1966. A terrifying regime. Yeah. So Parker is infamous for not only promoting racial profiling and aggressive policing, but also for frequently harassing businesses and patrons along Central Avenue. A puritanical crusader against race mixing. <laughs> Parker had his officers raid and shutter nightclubs and juke joints that catered to both black and white patrons. Police blockaded stores, turning away all white customers and warning them that, quote, it was too dangerous to hang around black neighborhoods, unquote. Mm, awful. Yeah. During the 70s and 80s, a staggering 20 plus serial killers were active in Los Angeles alone. Holy shit. Yeah. Whoa. Among them were the Hillside Stranglers, the Trash Bag Killer, the Golden State Killer, the mm. Freeway Killer, and mm. we personally have covered the Night Stalker, the Skid Row Slasher, John Floyd Thomas Jr., and Chester Turner. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple more black serial killers in the mix who we'll get to eventually. Just hold on tight. We'll get yeah. there. But that is a lot of serial killers. Yeah. So just during the time that the Grim Sleeper was active, 
five other serial killers were active in the same area. Michael Hughes, Chester Turner, Daniel Lee Siebert, Louis Crane or Louis Crane, and Ivan Jerome Hill. The victims were all vulnerable Black women who struggled with drug addiction. Racial politics fueled by a history of mistrust between the Black residents and the police compounded problems. Police were more focused on drugs and gangs, and the women were easy pickings for serial killers. In the 1980s, L.A. averaged about 800 murders a year, more than half of them in South Central. Funny to hear you use the word easy pickings because we've talked about how they used the term strawberry to refer oh, to right. some of these victims. Yeah. And we must have said it at some point along the, we have almost 200 episodes, y'all. But a listener on Instagram said, yo, I heard the term strawberries in a hip hop song. And oh. I can't remember which rap, but it basically outlined everything Beth just said in a beautiful hip hop song that these women were strawberries. Wow. So if I remember correctly, the women that they called strawberries were the ones that would trade sex work for drugs. Yes. But it just brought it to mind when you said the word picking. Right. Like a fruit. Picking fruit. Picking strawberries. The area around Figueroa Street in South Los Angeles, sometimes referred to as the Figueroa Corridor, is notorious for sex work drug crime, and violence. The highest number of sex work-related arrests in Los Angeles occur in this area. Many street sex workers lack high school diplomas, are undocumented, have criminal records, and or are victims of abuse. Housing vouchers, food stamps, Medicaid, and other forms of welfare are difficult to get for anyone earning income from sex work, and they are often ostracized by or isolated from resources like family, church, and other community organizations. Their choices are slim, making them very vulnerable. Yeah, sometimes sex work is the only choice if you want to survive. The only kind of work they can get. Yeah, exactly. So now let's get into the killer's early life. What do you got, Beth? Well, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. was born in Los Angeles on August 30th, 1952, and was raised in South Central L.A. He was the second of three children and was raised by both parents. His father, Lonnie David Franklin Sr., was a longshoreman. His mother, Ruby Franklin, was originally from Texas and was a former beauty school student. She's been described as strong-willed. During his education, he had academic, social, and discipline problems. Not the brightest crayon in the box. No. His mother was able to get him a tutor, though, but it didn't help. And what he was good at was working on cars, and he got his first car when he was 14. According to his lifelong friend Ray Davis, he was not popular with girls, but he was described as a flirt, and he did have girlfriends. It's also been reported that he was a charmer. He had the gift of gab. He began getting into trouble at the age of 16. He was arrested for Grand Theft Auto, not the video game, the real-life crime. The real-life one, yeah. And burglary, and was expelled from school for fighting. At five foot seven inches, Ray called him a little bitty guy. <laughs> that could <laughs> that couldn't have felt good. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. In 1971, Franklin joined the army where he was a cook. In 1972, he was deployed overseas and stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. On April 17th, 1974, around 1230 a.m., A 17-year-old girl, only identified as Ingrid W., left her boyfriend's house in Stuttgart and was walking towards the train station when three U.S. Army soldiers pulled up alongside her in a Fiat. The men asked for directions, then forced Ingrid W. into the car. 
The men drove her to a remote location at Knife Point and took turns raping her. One of them photographed the attack. What? Ingrid's instincts told her to be compliant, hoping they would spare her life. Then they drove her home. Before she was dropped off, she gave one of her attackers her phone number, hoping it would help the police. Like she was pretending like she liked him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ingrid reported the attack to the police. The man she gave her phone number to actually called her and asked her out on a date. These no. guys, man. Oh, yeah. my God. Sometimes men are Stupid. so dumb. Yeah. yeah. With the help of the police, she scheduled to meet the man at a train station. When she saw him, she dropped a handkerchief, and that was the signal for police to get him, got him. <laughs> it was Lonnie Franklin. Franklin was arrested on May 6th, 1974. They found a knife in his boot. Following an eight-day trial in which Ingrid testified, he was convicted and sentenced. The other two men received four-year prison sentences for rape and kidnapping and attempted kidnapping. On July 24th, 1975, after serving less than one year, Franklin was given a general discharge from the U.S. Army and moved back to L.A. He worked various jobs, and for a short time, he was a garage attendant at the LAPD 77th Street Division Station. He then later worked as a Los Angeles City trash collector. According to Ray, he collected items other people threw out, particularly car parts. It's interesting he did not get a dishonorable discharge. Yeah, I was reading about that. And if he'd gotten a dishonorable discharge, it would have been hard for him to find work. Mm -hmm. And I think they decided for that reason. I'm not sure. But if he could get a general discharge instead of an honorable discharge, he can't go back into the army or Mm. any kind of military service, but he can still get a job. Still get a job and still get benefits, VA benefits. Yeah. Yeah. In the early 80s, Franklin married a Belizean woman. (laughs) I knew you'd like that detail. (laughs) I didn't know that. And by the way, there's a large Belizean population in LA, so it makes sense. Yeah. Named Sylvia Lino. Oh, my God. Is that a really Belizean name? Yeah, but it also is a name associated with relatives of mine oh my god oh my god <laughs> you should check and see if holy you're a relative sh- holy <laughs> shit uh i'm gonna have to talk to my mom after we yeah. record so <laughs> the couple had two children crystal and christopher in 1986 they moved into a house in south central that was at some point painted mint green i'm all out of sorts i'm sorry i that's okay that really you threw got me too off. excited yeah. about the Belizean woman <laughs> so yeah their house is like super duper mint green yeah (laughs) it's crazy looking (laughs) i wonder what led them somebody threw out some mint green paint (laughs) oh look at all this extra mint green it's free yeah you're right that's probably what happened that's what Mm -hmm. happened yeah (laughs) if it's free it's for me (laughs) franklin's time with the sanitation department was plagued with injury claims In 1991, he submitted an application for disability benefits, which was eventually approved. Franklin was then free to do whatever he wanted with his time as he collected his disability checks. I just hate that because that's the reason why insurance is so expensive for all And it's so hard to get disability. Exactly. Yes. So Sylvia worked in a legal office and may have owned some rental property elsewhere in South Los Angeles. Franklin worked on cars at his home, some of which were stolen. He also ran a retail shop of sorts, selling electronics such as speakers and computers, still in sealed boxes, but also bicycles he rebuilt and car parts. 
Over the years, Franklin was arrested at least 15 times for car theft, burglary, receiving stolen property, assaults, firearms possession, and other crimes. In most cases, he avoided prosecution or was sent to jail and placed on probation. His neighbors shrugged it off. They perceived him as a good neighbor, quick with a helping hand. He fixed up their cars and their kids' bikes and took elderly neighbors to the grocery store. He attended the graduation ceremonies of neighbors' children and brought gifts to elderly neighbors on their birthdays. I didn't know all this. Wow. Yeah. Kids in the neighborhood called him Uncle Lonnie. Oh, hmm. my God. Yeah. Uncle Lonnie. Uncle Lonnie, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's something wrong with Uncle Lonnie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uncle Lonnie makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Can I have some pancakes now? <laughs> He shared his beer with neighbors and was not a quiet man who kept to himself. Mm. Many neighbors avoided him on the street, not because he was a creep, but because he would talk your ear off and it was hard to get away from the conversation. We and I have a neighbor know. like that. Yeah. We all know an Uncle you know Lonnie in our neighborhood that as soon as you pull in, you are hitting the garage door button. I don't care if I get carbon monoxide poisoning. I don't want to talk to you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So he had an on again, off again relationship with Sylvia and he had several girlfriends, but he doted on his two children, teaching them how to drive and fixing cars. When his mother-in-law got sick, he was the one who took her to the doctor. But he also had a darker side. He talked with his friend Ray about all the girls he met and showed his friends photos of the girls. He gave the girls nicknames based on their body parts and their appearance. Gross. Gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Personal jinx. Also, uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, I've heard this mentioned in a couple of sources. He was just obsessed with women. Yeah. Yeah. The form of women and what uh, it's just it's an interesting it's obsession. Yeah. <laughs> a friend said he was riding with Franklin one day when Franklin popped open the glove compartment and pulled out a stack of photographs of naked women. One neighbor said he kept a box of women's underwear. Another said he was, quote, nice guy, but he was a freaky old man. He just talked nasty, unquote. <laughs> yeah, and the box of women's underwear, I think that he took the underwear from the women he killed. Oh, when you put it that way. It's really quite disturbing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Towards women he regarded as upstanding citizens, he was a charmer, kind of flirtatious, but several neighbors said he was known to visit sex workers on the regular. He spoke about them openly and vividly and sometimes in bitter terms, calling them crackheads and other names. Mm. His son Christopher later said that his dad beat him as a child and that he didn't really realize it until later because you don't really know what's going on when you're a kid. But his home life was kind of fucked up and his yeah. dad was, quote, unquote, perf. And that's so interesting because I don't know how many of us look back at our childhoods and are like, that was actually kind of toxic. Kind of fucked up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I could raise my hand and say it. <laughs> On August 10th, 1985, the body of Deborah Ronette Jackson, 29, was found in an alley lying against a fence and underneath a carpet. Deborah was a cosmetology student who worked as a cocktail waitress. She was described as carefree and outgoing. She'd moved to Los Angeles with her three children in 1975 to help take care of her grandmother. But she struggled with a cocaine addiction. And as her addiction grew, she lost custody of her kids. The day before Deborah's body had been found, a woman named Dale Okazaki had been murdered and her roommate Maria Hernandez wounded in an attack by the Night Stalker. Whoa, Richard Ramirez, about 20 miles from South Central. A lot of murders happening. 
Yeah, when I read this part, I was like, Dale Okazaki, I, re- I recognize that name. And then, you oh, did. Oh, yeah, I did. OG. Because we covered the Night Stalker. That's yeah. right. OG yeah. comes through every time. <laughs> Many of the Night Stalker's victims were middle to upper class, and police were more focused on this story than on the murder of a black woman in South Central. An occurrence so common, the victims were sometimes referred to as ghetto elk. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Yeah, terrible. So ghetto elk. Ghetto animals. Yes. Well, elk, like they're being hunted. Yeah, but hunted yeah. like animals. animals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, Gross. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. The Night Stalker was caught on August 31st, 1985. Deborah's killer would not be caught for another 25 years. Deborah had been shot in the chest three times with a 25 caliber pistol. Because of the advanced state of decomposition, they could not tell if she'd been sexually assaulted. The main suspect in Deborah's murder was her girlfriend Beatrice. But with little evidence to prove Beatrice has anything to do with it and other murders to investigate, the case went cold. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. As we mentioned, there were other serial killers working in the area at the same time. And in 1985, the LAPD formed the Southside Slayer Task Force, focusing on a string of killings where the MO was strangling and stabbing. But the Grim Sleeper was shooting 
people. Yeah. In 1986, Margaret Prescott founded the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, which was established in response to the murders of women in South Los Angeles. She was concerned that the murders were not being investigated thoroughly. Chief Gates denied this and called criticism of the police verbal harassment. Oh, He's my God. Such a dick. I... <laughs> How dare how dare you? He said. Oh yes. my God! How dare you? Wait a minute. In, uh, murder compared to criticism. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, such a snowflake. I seriously, yeah. yeah. Who is the snowflake now? <laughs> By July 1986, police counted 18 homicides of Black women that they deemed related. L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley held a press conference asking the public for help. But by August 1986, police began to suspect that their theory that one man was responsible for all 18 murders was wrong. They actually didn't know how many killers they were looking for. It's kind of interesting to hear that the mayor said, we need help. Public, Mm -hmm. please help us. But if you talk to the people in the community, they will say, nobody came to our door to ask us any questions. Yeah. Nobody ever asked me anything. It was just optics. Yep. On August 12th, 1986, the body of Henrietta Wright, 34, was found in an alley littered with trash. A single mother of five, Henrietta worked nights as a cocktail waitress and days as a cafeteria worker at a school. And she enjoyed playing pool. Ooh, that's a lot for one yeah. woman to, yeah. to shoulder. She was a go-getter. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I wish I had her energy. Yeah. So she was doing well until her house burned down and her family got scattered. Soon, Henrietta was struggling with addiction. When the crack epidemic hit, Henrietta became a casualty. Yeah. So when her house got burned down, her kids had to go live somewhere else. And, uh-huh. you know, the trauma of all they didn't of have that. a house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. Yeah. Henrietta's body was partially hidden under a mattress and a blanket. Her shorts were unzipped and her top pulled up to her breasts. Cloth was stuffed in her mouth and there was blood on her face and in her right ear. She was missing her shoes, underwear, and ID. Henrietta had been shot twice at close range with a twenty-five caliber gun. The Southside Slayer Task Force was brought in, but passed the case because they were focusing on victims who had been strangled and stabbed. The precinct that handled Deborah Jackson's murder picked it up. By the end of August, police determined that the same 25 caliber gun was used to kill both Henrietta and Deborah. On January 10th, 1987, an anonymous tipster called 911 and said that he'd seen a man dump a woman from a van. When police arrived on the scene at about 12.30 a.m., they found the body of Barbara Bethune Ware, 23, partially hidden under cardboard boxes, plastic bags, dried leaves, and weeds. Barbara's mother died when she was 12 which devastated her. She moved in with her father and stepmother, but started acting out and eventually got into drugs. As her addiction took hold, she got into more and more trouble. A suicide attempt forced her into rehab, and afterwards she was trying to clean up, but she didn't get the chance. Barbara's body had been partially placed in a garbage bag, and a gas tank from a car had been placed on her legs. Her shirt had been pulled up, exposing her stomach. She'd been shot in the chest with a 25 caliber bullet. The phone tipster had given the police a license plate number, which was traced to a church van. The people who drove the van that night were investigated, but were eliminated. In addition, tire tracks at the scene did not match the van. Police began to suspect that the tipster might have been the murderer who was playing games with them. Yeah, and they also determined that 
he would have had to been like right up on the van to be able to see the license plate and uh-huh. because there was no light. And so they're like, there's no way it happened the way that he said it did. OK, yeah. got it. Got it. Oh, gee, true crime. There she is. Thank you. <laughs> the 25 caliber bullet that killed Barbara was linked to Henrietta and Deborah. Police started calling these murders the 25 caliber killings, but they kept this information secret. Oh, of course. Of yep. course they did. It's a secret. <laughs> All right. Shh, yeah. Shh, 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 shh. Hush. <laughs> On April 16th, 1987, another body was found, this time in a dumpster in a parking lot behind a business. The body was identified as Bernita Rochelle Sparks, 26. Bernita was a daughter and a sister, and she had a steady boyfriend named Fred. She was about to start a new job as a school monitor in just a few days. Bernita's body was covered in trash and debris. She'd been beaten, possibly strangled, shot in the chest with a 25 caliber gun, and dumped into the dumpster headfirst. There were fresh tire marks and footprints by the dumpster. On November 1st, 1987, the body of Mary Lowe, 26, was found. Mary has been described as a free spirit who did what she wanted when she wanted. She dropped out of high school in the 11th grade and she struggled with addiction. She sometimes lived with her parents, with friends, or with a boyfriend. She often went by the name Brenda. On the evening of Halloween 1987, she was out with a friend at a bar. She was last seen on November 1st around 1 a.m. She'd been trying to find a ride home, but she was seen walking alone. Mary's body was found in an alley between a cinder block and a bush. Her pants were unbuttoned and half unzipped, and she wasn't wearing any underwear. On November 4th, Mary's murder was linked to the 25 caliber murders. On January 30th, 1988, another body was found, that of Lucretia Jefferson, 22. That year, her mother, Wanda Hutton, had been in a constant state of worry because of her daughter's lifestyle. As a kid, she liked to roller skate, dance, sing, and go to the beach. And she had mm. dreams of becoming a pediatrician. But unfortunately, she got hooked on crack. Gosh, if you saw this in like a friend profile or a dating profile, wouldn't you be like, yes, I want to get to know this person. Yeah, yeah. What a like lovely, mm, lovely, lovely person. So Lucretia's body was found under a mattress in an alley. Someone had placed a napkin with the words AIDS handwritten on it over her nose and mouth. And this is what year? 87. So this is when AIDS was really scary and law enforcement and first responders were also afraid of it. Scared. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she was fully dressed, but wasn't wearing underwear. At first, police thought LaCritia had overdosed. But when the autopsy was done, they discovered that she'd been shot twice in the chest with a 25 caliber pistol. Ballistics linked her to the 25 caliber killings. In the meantime, sexual assault kits that had been obtained from the bodies of Barbara Ware, Mary Lowe, and Bernice Sparks were analyzed for DNA, which was a brand new technology at the time. Woo! Yeah. There you Hang go. on. <laughs> <laughs> the DNA came back as the same male, but he was not in the system. All of the victims were found within a four-mile radius and police believed that the perp was probably a black male who lived in that area. They were right. Yeah, they were right. On September 6th, 1988, Alicia Monique Alexander, 18, who went by Monique, told her dad she was going to the store, but she never came back. A witness saw her exiting the store and getting into an orange car. Her dad worried as it got later and later, and then as the hours turned into days, her parents started to panic. Monique had dropped out of the 12th grade and had started getting into drugs, but she wasn't known to leave home for long periods of time. 
Her body was found on September 11th in an alley under a mattress. She was almost naked, her head propped up on a tire. A shirt had been twisted and knotted around her neck, and she had been shot in the chest with a 25 caliber pistol. On November 19, 1988, Anitria Washington was walking to a friend's house when a man in an orange pinto with racing stripes offered her a ride. At first, she declined. The man complained that that's what's wrong with black women is that, quote, nobody can never be nice to you, unquote. I feel like there's a very valid culture corner here because (laughs) um, that's the problem with black women. Black women get criticized quite frequently, you know, for you always want to be strong. You always want to be independent. We black women are just like any other women. You know, this trope of strong black women, strong independent women is sometimes weaponized against us. And there is a movement now for black women who just want to be soft. I want to be held. I want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be strong. I'm (laughs) tired. But sometimes black men are capable of doing the same that the rest of society does to black women, which is criticize them for whatever, for whatever. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's always black women's fault. Thanks. Crack epidemic, Iraq, Afghanistan, all black women's fault. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so Anitria agreed to go with him to uh, spare his feelings. Yeah. And I think he was manipulating her. Definitely. Yeah. And she was young, too. Right. Yeah. can't remember how old she was. So at first, everything was OK. But when he started heading the wrong way, she protested and he became angry. He called her Brenda and went on a rant about how she had done him wrong. Yeah, and I remember her saying something like uh, when he called her Brenda and was going on this rant, she was like, I don't know you. (laughs) (laughs) Bruh, uh, what? (laughs) Whose man's is this? Are you all right? Should I call somebody? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. (laughs) So when she told him she wanted out of the car, he shot her. He just shot her. And when she tried to open the door, he said, quote, you open that door, bitch, I'll shoot you again, unquote. She asked him to take her to the hospital and he refused. Anitria blacked out. She was coming to. She saw flashes and realized that he was taking pictures. She blacked out again and awoke to him raping her. When he was done, he just shoved her out of the car and took off. She got up, walked to her friend's house and laid on her porch where her friend eventually found her. Miraculously. She survived. She'd been shot with a 25 caliber bullet, which was matched to the 25 caliber killer. She described her attacker as a black man who was shorter than her, neat, clean shaven, and well spoken. Police created a composite picture from her description. Police also started looking for an orange pinto with racing stripes in that neighborhood. If you want to go under the radar, get an orange pinto. Yeah. <laughs> On February 23rd, 1989, an LA County sheriff named Ricky Ross, not to be confused with Freeway Rick Ross, the crack cocaine dealer famous in the 1980s in Los Angeles, or Rick Ross, the gazillionaire rapper in Georgia. We've talked about all those people in the last couple of weeks. Exactly. So just (laughs) wanted to clarify for the listener. So this L.A. County Sheriff, Ricky Ross, was caught with a sex worker. Police found a gun in his trunk which came back as a match for the 25 caliber killings. Police thought they had their man. Anitria didn't think so when they showed her the lineup. Mm -hmm. She didn't think it was him. And eventually it was discovered that the ballistic match was wrong. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
But the police still believed that he was the 25 caliber killer and the killing stopped or so they thought. Then 13 years later on March 9th, 2002, another body was found that of Princess Bertholmew, 15. Princess had a horrific childhood, which included neglect, abuse and abandonment. She was taken in by a foster family who loved her, but her foster mother died when she was 12 and Princess never recovered from it. She'd bounced from foster home to foster home, running away from each home that she was placed in, resorting to sex work to get by. She was reported missing by her last foster mother on December 21st, 2001. Princess's body was found in an alley in Inglewood. She'd been strangled to death and sexually assaulted. On July 11th, 2003, the body of Valerie McCorvey, 35, was found in South Central. Valerie was a sex worker who struggled with addiction. She had at one time gotten cleaned up and even worked at a drug facility helping other people struggling with addiction. But ultimately, she went back to using. Valerie had been strangled to death and left in an alley, half-clothed. Due to some abrasions on her body, police believed that she'd been dumped from a car. That sounds familiar. Yep. She was swabbed for DNA, which was sent to the crime lab. Towards the end of 2004, the murders of Princess and Valerie were linked through DNA evidence to the string of other murders that police were calling the 25 caliber killings. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well done, guys. Um, actually, you didn't do it. It was DNA. DNA. <laughs> I wish there was like DNA. There was a DNA superhero that would like pull off his sunglasses and was like, DNA is here to solve the case with a cape and stuff. In 2006, L.A. Weekly reporter Christine Pelisek broke the story of a serial killer who had been stalking South L.A. for decades, dubbing him the Grim Sleeper. Prior to this, the police had been keeping it a secret. You motherfuckers! (laughs) Family members of the victims were upset. Understatement. When they learned that the police had kept this information from them. Yeah, they didn't even know that their family members were killed by a serial killer. By a serial killer. And again... I think the authorities were like, please, public, help us. But they didn't do anything other than say that on TV. Yeah. Right. And after the story broke, a press conference was then held and a $500,000 reward for the killer was offered. They took the composite created from Anitria Washington's information and did an age regression on it. And the 911 call from the Barbara Ware case was released. Still, nothing came of it. On January 1st, 2007, the body of Janicia Peters, 25 years old, was found in a dumpster in a plastic trash bag. Janicia, called Nicia by her family, was a student at L.A. College with a promising future when she began struggling with addiction. She'd been shot in the back and put in the bag, which was then zip-tied closed, and she hadn't died from the shooting. <gasps> she died from asphyxiation. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. There was no DNA on her body, but DNA was found on the zip tie. Mm. The DNA matched the other 25 caliber killings, although the ballistics did not match. Ten victims total had been linked through ballistics and or DNA. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma, 
Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. All right, now let's get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Wendy. I just always <laughs> wanted to say that. In Franklin's neighborhood, the Grim Sleeper was a hot topic of conversation. That people be nosy until, until like there's gunshots or the police are talking to you directly. Sketches of the suspect were plastered on the walls of liquor stores. And Franklin actually lived down the street from a billboard seeking leads in the case that showed the faces of the young victims. But nobody suspected him. No one appears to have remembered that for years he drove a bright orange Pinto with racing stripes, the same type of vehicle that was once described as the killer's car by Anitria Washington. Although the police had the killer's DNA profile, it was not in CODIS, the national database for DNA. Despite his numerous contacts with the police, Franklin was never, 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 ever (laughs) entered into the state's DNA database because his crimes were never considered serious enough. In 2004, voters approved a measure that required DNA to be taken from every person convicted of a felony. But Franklin's last conviction had been a year earlier. Oops. In 2009, a new DNA technique was approved in California called familial search. This is the use of DNA samples taken from convicted criminals to track down relatives who may themselves have committed a crime. At the time, only two states, Colorado and California, permitted familial search. And this is a controversial topic amongst Black people because we would love to know about our history because that was taken from us, right? Yeah. Through the Middle Passage and chattel slavery. But I do worry that if I give my DNA to 23andMe or Ancestry.com, that I don't know, could it contribute to somebody, you know, revealing a murderous, evil person in my lineage? I don't know. Yeah. But if they did give it to me for free, I probably would do it. So anyway, (laughs) if it's free, it's for me. If it's free, it's for me, as I said. Uh, So in the summer of 2009, Franklin's son, Christopher, had to give up a DNA swab when he was convicted of a felony weapons charge. Familiar search was a very new idea and it took a lot of time. So it wasn't until about a year later in June of 2010 that police got a DNA familial hit from Christopher's DNA and the DNA from the Grim Sleeper cases. Once it was determined that Christopher was related to the killer, detectives were able to eliminate all of his male relatives except for his father, Lonnie Franklin. Mm. They then focused on Franklin and began surveillance on him. On July 5th, 2010, police followed Franklin to a pizza place where he was attending a child's birthday party. Is Smacky making an appearance? (laughs) (laughs) As Franklin finished his meal, a detective posing as a busboy 
collected a fork, two plastic cups, a plate, and the pizza slice left by Franklin. A few days later, DNA taken from the pizza slice came back as a match to DNA found on one of Franklin's victims. And uh, this is why you should always eat all of your pizza, including the crust. <laughs> no crust left Don't behind. Leave that pizza behind. <laughs> Franklin was arrested at home as he was out watering the yard. After Franklin's arrest, during a three-day search of Franklin's property, investigators found women's necklaces, rings, earrings, and watches, and more than one thousand photos and videotapes of women and teenage girls, many of them naked or engaged in sex acts. Also found was a Polaroid photograph of survivor Anitria Washington, taken in Franklin's car. It looked like she was unconscious. They also found a photo of Janicia Peters, and in the same envelope, the school identification card of 18-year-old Ayala Marshall, and the Nevada driver's license of 29-year-old Rolinia Morris. Ayala and Rolinia had been reported missing in February and September 2005, respectively. Both women were last seen in the vicinity of Franklin's home at 81st and Western Avenues in Los Angeles. They have never been found. Police also found a 25 caliber pistol, which was later determined to be the gun that was used to kill Janicia Peters. In 2011, prosecutors announced their belief that Franklin killed at least six more women, in addition to the 10 women he was charged with murdering. All right, let's get into the trial. It took six years to build a case against Franklin. The trial took place between February 16th and May 2nd, 2016. During the trial, prosecutors painted Franklin as a sexual predator who killed women who weren't submissive enough. Prosecutor Beth Silverman told the jury during her closing arguments, quote, these crimes were about power and control, unquote. Franklin's longtime friend Ray Davis testified that Franklin's conquests were a common topic of conversation between them. Davis told the jury that Franklin took photos of various women and joked that he had names for all the girls in the photos, depending on what their breasts looked like. Oh, Ugh. Anitra Washington testified about how Franklin shot her, sexually assaulted her, and took a Polaroid picture of her before pushing her out of his car in 1988. And in May of 2016, following three months of testimony, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. was found guilty of murdering nine women and one teenager. During the penalty phase, prosecutors presented several victims that Franklin was not charged with. The cases were connected to Franklin after he'd been charged with the other murders. And prosecutors said additional charges would have forced more delays and not increased his possible punishment because he already was facing the death penalty. The victim's family supported the decision not to prosecute those cases. Glad they were given a decision, though. Yeah. On June 6th, 2016, during the penalty phase, prosecutor Beth Silverman asked the jury to show Franklin, quote, the exact same mercy, the exact same compassion that was showed to his victims because that's what he deserves, unquote. Oh, my God. Bam. Is she running for mayor of L.A.? <laughs> they, need some, they need some help over there. <laughs> Ingrid W., the German woman who had been gang raped in 1974, testified during the penalty phase. Prosecutor Silverman said that what Franklin learned about this attack on Ingrid was, quote, don't ever let your victim survive, unquote. The Los Angeles jury came back with the death penalty. As the verdict was read, Franklin stared straight ahead and showed no emotion. Behind him, in the audience, several victims' family members smiled while others brushed away tears. Diana Ware, Barbara's stepmother, said, quote, It is wonderful. It is all over. 
I'm glad he will never get out, unquote. Mary Alexander, the mother of Monique Alexander, said, quote, Her soul can rest. My baby can rest. When I go to her gravestone on her birthday on June 12th, I will tell her I'm so happy, unquote. Donnell Alexander, Monique's brother, added, quote, This is a new beginning. It is finally finished. I'm kind of numb. It hasn't registered yet. We are free at last. I take my hat off to the jurors. They had the guts to do what should have been done for years, unquote. And so now we are going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Authorities believe the grim sleeper never really slept and that in all, Franklin was responsible for at least 25 murders, probably more, Mm -hmm. including 11 that took place during the supposed dormant period. Mm -hmm. 180 photos of unidentified women were found on Franklin's property that were released to the public in order to identify them. 30 were not identified and a handful are believed to be other victims of Franklin. Kind of reminds me of Little. Samuel Little. Yes. Who, yes. Uh, had pictures drew, that he drew, or drew of the, the pictures. Women. Yeah. But the they were released to the public to help yes, identify them. To help the women. identify them. Yeah. yeah. At first, Christopher Franklin, the son, right. felt guilty because it was his DNA that led to the arrest of his father. But he later came to the realization that his dad was exactly where he needed to be. Franklin never confessed. And on March 28, 2020, he was found unresponsive in his prison cell in San Quentin. He was pronounced dead at 7.43 p.m. He was 67. It is believed that the extent of his crimes will never be known for certain. It was reported that he was still receiving disability payments of $1,700 a month Mm. from the city of L.A. from his prior employment up until his death. That's wild. Yeah. And I got that from that reporter who leaked the whole story. Oh, uh, uh, Christine. Yeah, she she yeah. divulged that in a couple of interviews. Wow. So after Franklin's death, Diana Ware, stepmother of victim Barbara Ware, said, quote, I won't say I'm pleased he died, but in the end, there was justice for all the bad things he did in his life. We can now be at peace, unquote. So now we're going to get into what we think made him snap in our takes. What do you got for us, Beth? Well, this guy hated women. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> he, he sure hated the hell out of women. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why, but he did. Mm-hmm. He was also obsessed with them, but he hated them, which is, uh, yeah. It's I don't interesting. Know. I, don't I, I mean, <laughs> we, we say often many things can be true at the same time. Yeah. This is and interesting. It, yeah. That is true with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the way he treated his wife, he had girlfriends, frequent sex workers. It's no wonder that at the end she wanted nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. she she didn't show up for the trial. I think she had moved out of the house already. Okay. Or, okay. Yeah, she wanted nothing to do with him. Yeah. And I think he cultivated his cover as a nice neighbor that all his good deeds were calculated mm-hmm. because then people wouldn't suspect him right oh it's like he put all the stuff in the good deed bay yes and yes. then the the yeah. bad deed the bad deeds would wait <laughs> like i don't i don't know the math the math isn't mathing yeah. but i i i, I yeah. get where you're going yeah. it was a cover yeah. yeah i also think he changed his mo you know how he was shooting people with yeah. the 25 caliber pistol mm-hmm. and then that guy ricky ross was arrested and then it turned out that his gun was not a match. And then the killing supposedly stopped. I think he just stopped using the 25 caliber gun. 
because it was out in the news at that time because they thought Ricky Ross did it. Yeah. So he stopped using the gun and that's why they thought that the killing stopped stopped because he just changed his MO. Yeah. All right. Well, Um, everybody, this is, this has been, (laughs) this has been OG Corner with Beth and Wendy just sitting here watching. (laughs) Well done, friend. I also think he was lonely. The neighbors talked about how we would pester them with conversation. Um, and I think it's because, as one neighbor said, he was a freaky he, dude. He was nasty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was unable to make real connections with people. And so he would just talk at them, you know, oh. try to make a connection. But you like know. pretending to be. I don't think he was pretending. I think he just had no idea how to be a person. Oh. He just had no fucking clue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Which may lead to, was he a psychopath? I'm yeah. waiting with bated breath. What well, do you very, say? Very possibly. Yeah. Okay. Very possibly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think that he was pretty delusional. And I agree. We talked about he was obsessed with women and he bragged about his encounters with women. Right. It didn't go well. Nobody gave a shit. Nobody cared. But he bragged about it so much. I never forget those interviews with his friends in that documentary. And they were like Mm -hmm. talking about how he just loved showing pictures and and any, you know, relationships should be consensual. Yeah. And I didn't get the sense that this was that his any engagement, (laughs) any sexual engagement with. This guy was not consensual. And the photographs it is just like another level of a violation. Yeah. And he never took responsibility for any of this. It was yeah. always somebody else's fault. Right. Uh, he didn't know them. They came on to him. And it's just he's like a narcissistic psychopath to me. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not as smart as my friend Beth, but that's what oh, came off as to me. And then um, the military service, mark your bingo card if you were playing serial killer bingo, because he did. That, that is one thing that yeah, no, a lot of no, them have in common. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But he raped somebody while he was in the military. And yeah. I thought it was weird that he was not dishonorably discharged. Yeah. Or meaningfully yeah, reprimanded. Yeah, he didn't really get anything. Yeah. I mean, he was sentenced to jail, but he got out in less than a year. It was, yeah. it was weird. And my yeah. understanding is his sentence was less than the other yeah, people involved. Right. And then he had these occupations that sort of supported his murderous activities, like being a trash collector or yeah. like a fixer of cars. And he had a lot of insurance schemes going on where right. he would give people he money. He was hustling, always yeah, hustling. For yeah, for sure. Always hustling. And I would commend it. <laughs> Except (laughs) that he murdered people. Yeah. And, you know, working as a trash collector and some of the bodies were found in dumpsters. Yeah. And I think that some of the bodies, probably the missing women, Mm -hmm. were put in dumpsters and were never found. And so they're probably in the landfill. Yeah. I think you're probably right. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, how the Golden State Killer was allowed to kill for so long. Because he was in sort of law enforcement and knew how to game the system to his advantage so he could continue on these murderous activities. And I think the Grim Sleeper, being a black man engaged in whatever occupation he was, I don't know, I don't even know what you would call his job at the time, but he did the same, Mm -hmm. took advantage of his position. And he was a fraudster 
And also Ingrid. Apparently Ingrid's testimony at the sentencing part of the trial was really compelling. Yeah. And I just wanted to shout out Ingrid, but also Anitria, whose stories weren't really given any coverage or import and who really were brave in helping to put this guy away. And not just Ingrid, and it's not just Anitria. There was a lot of women, if you watch the documentary that we'll link to the show notes, who had encounters with him, dangerous ones, and talked about their stories and that the police never said a fucking word or asked them one goddamn question. (laughs) And so I just wanted to shout out to the LA Weekly article written by Christine Pelisek and then her book, which humanize yeah. she does a really good job of humanizing all right. of the victims. Yeah, all of the details. Uh, there was more details, a lot more details. Oh my too, god! That yeah, I couldn't include <laughs> that she she included in her book. Exactly, exactly. But the Smacky the Clown one is one I had to. <laughs> I had to. I, I, didn't, I had to I give didn't it to the fruities. That one. That's funny. I had to give it to the fruities. <laughs> um, but she did a really wonderful job. Yeah. of using her platform to tell these stories, and it's just powerful when people who have the platform do this yeah. and give these women a voice. But that's all I got. So now it's time to get in How Not to Get Murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> so what is this segment about, Beth? Oh, <laughs> what? I don't know. Uh, this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So sometimes some of the ways we can be safer is by helping other people in our community or in our world who need it. And we have it to give. And since substance use is an element in the story, I just wanted to recommend the idea of supporting harm reduction in your community. Um, And harm reduction is the idea that people are going to use substances. There's a million reasons why I'm not a therapist. I don't know if you are a therapist, but if we know people are going to use because of whatever circumstances they are dealing with, we can do what we can to help make it less deadly for the people we love and the people in our community. Make it less dangerous, make it less harmful, make it less connected to violent crime and dangerous situations and things like that. So there is a whole movement to support folks like you might have, if you're listening, heard of Narcan over the counter and the recommendation by lots of authorities to keep some nearby, keep some in your medicine cabinet at home. That's engaging in harm reduction. But if you don't even know where to start, I wanted to just shout out harmreduction.org and samhsa.gov. (laughs) Samhasa.gov <laughs> um, for ideas on what you can do as an Samhasa to what you can do to support <laughs> harm reduction because it can lead to really terrible things, including somebody you love being a victim of somebody like the Grim Sleeper. So yeah. it's just something to think about. Did you have anything okay. to add? Nope, that was good. Okay. Yay, I win. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> now it's time to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or any marginalized folks or any true crime goodies. Speaking of the earth being ghetto, (laughs) I wanted to shout out High Strange, which is a podcast by Payne Lindsay, member Atlanta Monster Guy. And also he's teamed up with the creators of Up and Vanished. And so what Payne attempts to do is 
break the stigma surrounding topics of UFOs. It's not huh. that crazy, you guys. It's <laughs> real. And he shines a light on like cover-ups, infamous cases. Hello, the Pentagon did say there are UFOs. You know what else he said? We don't know what the fuck they are. Yeah. So, uh, well, they're unidentified flying objects. Exactly. Your guess is as good as mine, but the podcast get into all of it. And there's only a couple episodes out as we're recording this, but I'm hooked. So all right. What do you got? There's a show on HBO Max okay. called Rain Dogs. Uh-huh. It's a British comedy drama series. It's pretty uh-huh. funny. I'm already sold. You don't have to say anything else, but for the listeners, go ahead. For the listeners, yeah. it's described as a raunchy, dark comedy set in London. And it follows Costello Jones. She's white, but there's black people in the show. Mm -hmm. As she navigates motherhood while dangling on the edge of poverty. She's a single mom, an aspiring writer, and a peep show dancer who manages to form a complex and sometimes toxic pseudo family to help her make it through. I love toxic family shows. <laughs> yes, I think I think you're going to love this one. It's, I it's pretty can't good. wait. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then subscribe. there's a show called Wu-Tang, an American saga. Have you watched that? Yes. Beth, are you watching the Wu-Tang show? Yeah, I didn't what? know anything oh about God. it. I didn't guys, know anything about it. <laughs> whoa. Uh, I want to fix you all the plates. <laughs> So wow. um, I only just found out about it and there's three seasons. I didn't I know. know. Yeah. Nobody we... told me. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, if, if the, I didn't know it was possible to like, love you so much more, than, like, but I'm like, oh my God, this white lady is amazing. Have it's really good. Of, have you guys heard of Beth? She's like really great. Now I'm not scared to go to Florida at all. If Beth is with me, woo! <laughs> yeah, Nothing we'll protect you. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I think that's on Hulu. Wu yes, Tang and American it is. Saga. It, yeah, is, okay. it is. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, just to recap, those are High Strange podcast, wherever you get your podcast, and it's High H I G H Strange. And then Rain Dogs on HBO, as well as Wu Tang and American Saga on Hulu. About right. the famous rap group yes. Wu Tang. <gasps> uh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> it that got awkward really fast. It looks like it's the it's the end, it's the of, end the of our episode, and um, I guess Beth is gonna tell us where where you can find us. Yeah, next yeah. time. Here we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors yeah. or by giving us a five-star review. So please do those things. Please do. <laughs> um, well, y'all, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
great. This has been OG Corner with Beth. I think it's important. It's important. (laughs) It was DNA, bitches. If it's free, it's for me. If it's free, it's for me, as I said. (laughs) Personal jinx. I'm sorry. There's a fly. Didn't get him. Okay. Is Smacky making an appearance? (laughs) Uh, There's something wrong with Uncle Lonnie. Uh, Yeah. Uncle Lonnie makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) He just had no idea how to be a person. Then in that case, goodbye. Earth is ghetto. Beth wants to leave. Can you be? Yeah, today I kind of want to leave. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.